This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and today I'm joined by a different cast for our Tuesday podcast. Jenny Russell, we've been abandoned by Hugo and Matthew. Jenny's still here. And another Times columnist, Phil Collins, who's been travelling across the country, understanding the voters, is back in the safety of the Times building and he's with us. And another special guest, Marcus Roberts, a contributor to the Red Box Times email and also Deputy General Secretary. Secretary of the Fabian Society. Marcus, you've been interviewed on the podcast before, but I think this is the first time as a guest. So yes, a it's very, a high honour indeed. A very, a very warm welcome. So, what are our topics for today? The slightest movement is treated to exaggerated analysis. Nothing escapes attention, no matter how trivial, as the political class examines every non-twist and every straight turn. Every panic reaction begets another. A day has become a long time in politics, and if you're not quick, you're dead. Only nothing fundamental has actually happened yet, or perhaps it has, and we just don't know what it is. Voters are being left out from this election. Politicians use huge national statistics. The media obsesses over confidence and supply deals for May 8th, and everywhere we turn, there is policy, policy, policy. But in all my years campaigning, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of voters who have asked me on the doorstep about policy. One day, we'll have parties that do something bigger, but in the meantime, we'll just see both our parties fight each other to a bloody draw. Hundreds of migrants have died trying to cross the Mediterranean this week, and Europe has reacted with shock and shame. We need a new strategy, the politicians say. Desperate people shouldn't be trafficked and then left to drown. The problem is that no one has any idea what that strategy ought to be. The truth is that we in Europe want migration to be difficult. We just don't want the consequences to be tragic, guilt-inducing and visible on our screens. Well, we'll come back to that sad topic of Jenny's towards the end of the podcast. But, uh, Phil, welcome back. You've been going around the country and um, we have been obsessing while you've been away covering all of these small movements which we regard as huge events and have you not been following our analysis and enjoying it i'm glad to say i haven't seen (sighs) any of it uh (laughs) and you come back and you discover that everything's the same apart from the fact that everyone you know has gone mad Uh, because (laughs) you've had a week of being (laughs) panic stricken about nothing 
the, the polls seem to me, having been away for a week, the same as they were when I left, and yet everyone's in a state of fevered anticipation. It's probably because, I suppose, people thought by now the Conservatives would have established a lead, so therefore the, the complete presence of nothing seems like an event. Mm. But I have to remind everybody, nothing is not an event, nothing has yet happened. And the, it was very conspicuous going on. I was in the northwest of England, which is a crucial region because who who wins the northwest tends to win the general election which is why i chose it and uh, the, manchester united beat manchester city while you were there they, in terms they, of winning in the northwest yeah, but, yes. so we won't we won't dwell on that yes they did the, the reds beat the blues which i don't think is a good omen for the general election actually <laughs> i think the blues will win a last minute victory i found as i went around the, the seats lots of them marginal seats very important ones that the 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 election which is happening in the newspapers is not happening there at all. Uh, they're just not interested. I, we, I talked about Japanese knotweed, I talked about fly tipping, I talked about re roads resurfacing, all topics on which I'm an expert, obviously. I did not talk at any point about Ed Miliband and his strengths or weaknesses. Nobody mentioned the SNP. Um, the subject of every national newspaper every day. Mm -hmm. The only time I talked about the SNP was when I had dinner with Nicola Sturgeon after a television programme. She was quite interested in it. Name drop um, Well, I, I dropped the name because it's. I've said before that I think the politics these days is subject to Robert Conquest's third law, which is that at a certain point every organisation is taken over by a cabal of its enemies. Mm. And this certainly seems to me to be true of the Conservative Party and the right-wing press, which in pressing the case for the SNP is doing it, all it can to hasten the demise of the Union uh, and doing nothing at all to enhance the, the likelihood of a Conservative government. But that didn't come up either. So yeah. I found an election that sort of wasn't quite happening. And the, the other conspicuous thing that I took from it was if there is a reward for hard work in this election, then Labour will win. Mm. Because the Labour candidates everywhere I went were enthusiastic, full of drive, with a team that was yeah, out they're there. They're hungry. You see that they in Ed really Miliband versus David Cameron, yes, I think, to I, some extent I think as well. you do. Look, you, you've said enough now. You've said so much. I want to bring... Jenny and Marcus in. Jenny, the charge against you, the charge against me, is that we are fretting well, it's, over... Well, it's me too, oh, uh, yeah. really, in my usual He does guys. appear every week in a very large <laughs> slot on yeah, a Friday. Right, right. Right. I'm, not, I'm not exempting uh, myself. Uh, but are we... But is, is the question, though, that Phil poses, Jenny, an important one, and you, you've, you've raised at the end of this podcast an incredibly important topic, but are we too often worrying about small movements in opinion polls and small changes in tactics and we aren't focusing on the things that matter. Well, it's hard for us in London to decide that we ought to be writing columns about Japanese knotweed in the Northwest, for instance, because that may not be of any interest to a voter that Marcus has been talking to and in Southampton. every time I've ever been on a campaign trail for election after election, that's all you talk about, bindweed and gardens <laughs> and dogs. The idea that this is, like, different yeah. is not true. So, so, in a sense, we're reduced to for writing nationally um, to write about the things that the parties think are going to appeal across the board. Of course, if none of those messages are hitting home, then we know that they um, have got an acute problem because the defence that politicians always give about being so um, dull in between elections is and not being noticed by the voters is, are voters all going to concentrate in the last three or four weeks? That's the political theory. They're suddenly going to sit up, realise an election's going on and start wondering what the main manifesto promises are. But um, So I think, of course, Phil is right. I, I mean, what can you say if both Phil and Marcus out on the doorsteps are finding that people aren't interested in the fact there's 6,000 extra nurses and 2,000 extra, extra doctors and a new right to buy scheme, then the politicians are failing. I think they but, don't believe it, Jenny. I, I think it's not. it wouldn't be fair to say they're not interested. I think they just don't believe those pledges. Mm. I think they just pass over their heads. Uh, and so, they, 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 so they hear them and discount them? Yes, I think so. I don't think it's that they're not paying any attention or couldn't care less or anything like that. I think they're 
engaged and certainly when you go and you knock on the door you engage them it's just that those promises if they're even ever referred to by the the campaigner are just not really believed and meanwhile do you get a local candidate saying yes you know we can eradicate not to eat i mean when they're talking about those local oh problems, yes. so the, the local candidates are all on top of them oh absolutely that's right they, they do indeed say that and that's um that then there are votes in that too i yes. mean it's not, not i mean not we like a metaphor for, for for local problems but the things that were, were coming up were things of local significance and where you had i asked this of everyone I went round with, do you get political gratitude if you're seen to be a good local campaigner, both at local government level and the and the MP? And generally speaking, the answer was yes, you do. But then I think you're left with a paradox, just quickly, which is that you've got 650 local campaigns going on, and yet the, po- the polls remain exactly the same. Marcus, you've working in a Southampton itchency, a marginal seat, Labour held, but um, you're also, I think, working with a number of Labour candidates around the country. How much of what uh, Phil has shared resonates with, with you. Very much so. In, in just the last week I've been campaigning in the East End of London and in Thurrock and in other seats. And at the heart of all of this, I think, is the question of trust. Because when you take the kind of local action that Phil and Jenny have just been talking about, you can earn voters' trust back. When you talk about how a pothole can get fixed on the street where the voter lives, then you've got something that is more credible than some huge national statistic, as Jennings says, about the number of nurses, or some imagined flight of fancy as to what might happen with housing association right-to-buy schemes in the future. The problem is that our politics is taking place on two levels, the national level and the local level. And at the national level, we are obsessing over the game and the rules of the game, who's up and who's down and the horse race. And that's fine and it's interesting and it adds value for the village. Interesting to us, maybe not interesting to the nation <laughs> as a whole. Precisely, because it, it is interest to the Westminster village, but it is not of interest to voters. And so when a politician stands up and makes a promise using a gigantic number that is in the billions or the millions or even the thousands, voters say, how does that affect me? And they don't even say that consciously because they're so busy consciously dismissing and disregarding that that they're moving on to that which makes a difference in their real lives. And that's why local candidates and local campaigns can make a difference. And that's one of the big reasons why I think in this election you'll see a lot of different results, actually, when the outcome comes through. On the one hand, I think you'll see a number of Tory MPs who are well entrenched and doing good casework survive even what seems to be like the national swing against the Tory party happening. But on the other hand, I think you'll see Labour candidates very far down the list of target Labour seats who win. Why? Because they've put in the long, hard hours of this kind of community campaigning work to make the difference in their areas and win back that trust. You know, you listeners won't know, you're actually quite an expert on the ground war. You've been involved in lots of ground war campaigns on the other side of the Atlantic as well as as here. We have these polls from Lord Ashcroft. We have the kind of eyewitness testimony that Phil has brought back to us that the Tories are much less visible in many of the many of the seats is this because well first of all perhaps do you agree with it do you Mm. think Labour has a better ground operation and how much is that because of the union movement helping Labour how much are we seeing the consequences of the collapse in the Tory membership 
I think all of these things have come together to create something of a perfect storm for Labour's ground game against a total collapse on the Tory side of the, the total equation. Total collapse? Seriously, yes. Because in just one seat on, on Saturday, I encountered in the space of 20 minutes um, uh, two Tory MPs who were blind leafleting. That means they were dropping a leaflet out in every single door that they went along. And you think if that's what you're using your MPs for as cannon fodder to just drop one leaflet in every door, if there's no targeting, if there's no understanding of the, so the superior... It could have been a totally Labour ward. They, they could have, have just been, been wasting their time. They could could have, well, not wasting, being counterproductive. Mm. Yeah, yeah, your opponent. The only story I came across all week was having lunch. It was impossible. How dare he? Well, it was impossible. <laughs> to, impossible to find any operation in the northwest and in this i think the myth that the air war matters more than the ground war is actually really harmed the tories because their air war hasn't been as strong as was expected in this short campaign and that means the ground war has become even more important so you put those factors into play as well and again you see advantage labor do you jenny can i ask you the Mm. point is we i've made to to phil is cameron doesn't look as hungry for this election as ed miliband looks as as hungry and we seem to be perhaps hearing that from marcus in terms of the activism of the of the ground troops as well we saw i don't know whether you saw andrew marr on sunday morning we saw a slightly more energetic almost angry cameron do you think this matters do you think the the lack of passion that perhaps is coming from him will register on election day or are we now in the territory that phil thinks we are of analyzing small things too much no i think the the message that the prime minister gives is is an important one i think cameron has got two problems first is that it's actually quite difficult to switch from being the grand premier thinking about issues like how do we deal with the migrants across the mediterranean or the threat from putin's russia or isis or whatever else the grand decisions are into being that hungry passionate person who's energized about the fact they've got to get power if you're already in the bubble and you have it and you're surrounded by all kinds of people whose job it is to make sure that your life can run smoothly it's rather hard to come out and then Um, be energised about the political struggle ahead. In some ways, I think it must be a little hard for a Prime Minister to believe that what they have may be about to be taken away from them. Mm. But the second huge error, retrospectively, we can all say, has been the Prime Minister. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. 
Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. There's absence from the debates, and they have turned out to be, as Downing Street feared, the big events of the campaign, the moments at which leaders are showcased. And because he isn't there, it's given the impression that he doesn't really care, which wasn't what they anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's neither got energy nor presence, and I think that's been disastrous. It gives the sense that the Tories are above the fray, and now, as both Phil and Marcus are saying, they're not beneath it either. I'm not sure I agree with that, Phil. Isn't this an example? where the debates are exactly what you're talking about, phenomenon that are over-examined by the Westminster Village but not really being watched by people who are floating voters out there. Well, they were certainly under-examined by me because I didn't watch them. I wasn't interested in them particularly and nobody mentioned them at any point so I I doubt they're particularly important. They've made a difference to Ed Miliband's standing. Yes, they made a slight difference to Ed Miliband's standing. Again, slight is all that's necessary But it's really, really slight. And they've made a slight uh, difference to to David Cameron's standing. But the, the margins here are very small. Now, this may be an election in which small margins matter, so I'm not dismissing that as an important fact. That may may well turn out to be an important fact. One final reflection from um, wandering around the country was I got the real sense that most people knew what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this notion that lots of people undecided, as though they're waiting for the second half of the campaign before they, they decide what to do. I don't believe that. I just think they haven't told us yet. The way Ed Miliband, um, Marcus Roberts, the way Ed Miliband's improved standing might matter is those wavering Labour voters who weren't quite sure about him might now be a bit more sure about him. They might now come out to vote, just as Cameron's performances may not convince anyone to change their mind, but might just help bring a few UKIP voters back or might energise a few Conservatives. This is an election that is going to be fought on small shifts like that. That's exactly right. And there are a lot of problems with the so-called 35% strategy that the Labour Party has been accused of running for the last few years, which is saying really just core vote, taking the Labour 2010 vote, adding a chunk of Lib Dem converts and, and eking a win out over the finish line. But because these small things seem to be breaking Labour's way, that's why there is an advantage to Labour in this election. I think that Cameron did make a mistake when he didn't show up to the debates, because if you're saying that one of your two big cards in the election campaign is leadership, the other being the economy, and then you don't actually contest the space where leadership is being debated publicly, then as a consequence, you've actually hurt yourself somewhat. Mm. Then on the other side, I don't understand why the Conservative Party continues to make an argument about the economy that says everything is great, everything is awesome, when instead, actually, a lot of people's real lives are suffering. They don't seem to have learned the lesson, particularly of the Obama campaign in 2012, which is when you're running for re-election in an economy that is in the process of turning around but isn't there yet, it's a better idea to say a lot done, a lot to do, than it is to tell people Mm. that their lived experience is irrelevant because actually life is just great. Well, I will link to, uh, for those who are Times readers listening um, to this podcast and if you're not why aren't you do go to the times.co.uk slash comment central i linked some background pieces about the election including something marcus you wrote for us a year ago on this very obama point about never communicating complacency Mm. and job done to to voters Um, i need to move on to jenny's topic uh, as we move towards the end of this podcast we kind of moved merged i think your and phil's topics together marcus but just on your specific point about policy 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 and no one really raising policy on the on the doorstep policy what does policy matter for if voters don't trust politicians announcing policies 
Does, for example, the non-DOM announcement from Labour, does it at least reinforce the Labour brand that this is a party that stands up to the, to the rich and powerful? Does the right-to-buy policy from the Tories reinforce the idea that the Tories are the party of property ownership? Is, are these policies largely important for signalling? Sure, they're great for signalling, but they're great for signalling in terms of confirming what we already know about the two main parties. They're great for signalling that Labour cares about taxing the rich, and they're great for signalling that the Tories care about aspiration but it doesn't get you any votes you don't already have mm -hmm. it may energize your existing bases but in the absence of anything that really breaks through that's why we'll end up i think with effectively a tie you don't think that um stephen shakespeare published a fascinating analysis in saturday's times when he talked about the fact that the tories hadn't enlarged their vote at all mm -hmm. they'd played safe and he thought that was a mistake but actually the right to buy policy is a policy where actually you are saying to people perhaps who are inclined to vote Labour, housing association tenants, we're going to give you your home. That actually is a vote changer, isn't it? It's a vote changer, but as Lord Ashcroft's uh, analysis points out of late, it's a little late to release your vote changer three weeks before <laughs> election day. If yeah. you're going to make a big argument, make a big argument over a long period of time. Jenny, last word before we move to your topic. Oh, it's also a vote loser. That very afternoon I was talking to somebody who's rented privately for 30 <coughs> years and she was absolutely furious. She was a genuine swing voter and she said, why should these people who have been living cheaply for all these years now get their house when I am going on paying out of my own pocket and I've got nothing? And it made her so angry with the Tories. Oh, I haven't seen such a fierce political reaction in some time. OK, well, let's move on to the topic, Jenny, that you've... Um given us. Um, I think we've all been appalled by the scenes of people drowning in the Mediterranean. I think the disaster that we saw on Sunday with 700 to 800 people having drowned is the worst disaster in the Mediterranean Sea since the, since the Second World War. The Prime Minister was on Andrew Marr, as we've already noted, on Sunday morning. He wasn't even asked about this. We should be much, much more exercised about this, shouldn't we? Well, it's, it's, they are scenes of complete horror. It's like reading about um, the slave trade in the 19th century. People locked, locked in holds behind below deck and, and drowning but the difficulty is that all the politicians standing up and saying now they're embarrassed and ashamed and so, so are we the populations by this and saying we must do something but the answer to the something is completely impossible to see because the reason that people are losing their lives like this is that they're coming from completely desperate situations all over the Middle East and Africa from Syria to the Congo and they would do almost anything to get to Europe and to join in the kinds of lives and lifestyles and opportunities that we have here. But unless the getting here is difficult, then many, many more millions of people are going to want to come to Europe than Europe is prepared to tolerate. The logical thing to do now would be to say, OK, if you want to come to Europe, we'll assess your applications in your countries of origin. You can go to the British Embassy and then you can get um, a £600 flight into London or Greece or wherever you want to go, rather than paying people traffickers $10,000 and perhaps dying in the process. But of course, there would be many more people even at those points wanting to come than we would admit. And so you would still be left with the people who were refused at that point trying to cross the Mediterranean. We've actually got a really elemental problem here, which is that we have got a rich lifestyle and we have a secure society and lots of people in the rest of the world would like to escape from desperate circumstances and come and live here. And we don't know what to do about that. Yeah. Well, Phil, uh, Jenny makes a good point about the long-term consequences of this. But just in the short term... 
we just need to stop people drowning. Isn't there just a basic humanitarian, whatever we, however we may address this problem in the long term, people are drowning out there at the moment and we're just watching them drown. That cannot be acceptable. Yes, I agree with that. I think we do need to resume that um, operation, as you, you yourself wrote in the Times this week, and I, I, I thoroughly agreed with that. You cannot stand by and let people die just off your shores. It's, mm. it's absolutely unconscionable. If once you've done that, I mean, Jenny, I, I agree with Jenny's points about the, the supply of immigration. We have put up the barriers against immigration in Europe and, um, and therefore it's difficult to get in and that's been a deliberate policy. I am much more liberal about that than the general consensus in European capitals and so I would be happier to see more people come through. But in the end, the ultimate solution to this is to deal with the demand for immigration and to put that in less technical language if the countries from which these people are trying to escape were more hospitable to them and were richer uh, and more developed, then the requirement for them to emigrate will be considerably less. Mm -hmm. So the responsibility really is to try and ensure that those countries become wealthier. Generally, as a rule, the countries with a big refugee problem are very poorly governed, mm. uh, and the and the economics follows the politics. Because Africa is getting, you know, it is one of the great success stories of the world economy at the moment. Africa is getting richer quite fast, and Nigeria could be a population of 450 million soon and quite wealthy. But the problem is that a lot of these migrants are coming from Libya and Sudan and Syria. This isn't just about prosperity. This is about major humanitarian crisis yes it, it's about political borders. instability yeah but one of the best ways of ensuring you get political stability is to have economic prosperity because then people have a stake in the in the nation so but at the moment libya syria sudan they just need security they the need prosperity secu is the the next stage yeah they need they need well, there are lots of economic migrants too i mean when there are no jobs and people are literally starving as they are in parts of southern sudan at times you don't care about the politics mm. you want the you want those, the prosperity. They need um, capitalism and democracy. <laughs> Marcus, um, I know the answer to this question before I answer it, but is Nigel Farage not right um, in the sense that um, if we had control of our borders, the UK, we could perhaps have fewer low-skilled migrants from Eastern Europe and we could open our doors to some of the humanitarian asylum seekers and refugees from these war-torn parts of the world. Isn't there a case for saying if we really were in charge of our immigration policy, we could be more generous actually to the people that really need it. But we're not more generous to the people that really need it because the British people are anxious about too many people coming in who actually we don't need. That would be possible if it weren't for the fact that a couple of years ago when Nigel Farage himself proposed a stricter EU immigration policy and a uh, more liberal uh, refugees policy, his own UKIP grassroots held him down and he was forced into a U-turn within 24 hours. So Nigel that, Farage, the moderate. If, if, that was, if that was his politics, it would be one thing, but it isn't. I think that this speaks to a more serious concern, which is the retreat that we've seen over the last five or even ten years from Britain's global responsibilities on the world stage. And we see that in terms of Britain withdrawing in the, from the Mediterranean tragedy and not living up to our responsibilities there. You see that in the fact that all of the political parties have refused to say they'll make the commitment to 2% uh, of GDP for defence spending that being a member of NATO is a prerequisite for. You see this in the fact that our debate over the international aid budget, a pathetically small 0.7%, is mired... 12 billillion pounds it's not my, a significant amount of money mired in this little englanderism of you know couldn't we just spend the money on our own problems back here instead of the enormous good that it can do elsewhere for such a small amount of cash 
And in all of this, I really worry that our politics has become so much about the management of the economy and the management of the NHS. We're forgetting that there's a much bigger world out there with really serious issues. And we have responsibilities if we still want to be a great power to live up to, to, to that. Okay, so well, our historical responsibilities, because we are the people who went into these countries and interfered with them over the past 150 or 200 yeah, well, years. Okay, but we didn't get into Syria recently and that non-intervention is still producing huge refugee crisis. I'm going to have the last word. <laughs> We've run out of time. Marcus Roberts, thank you so much for making your debut with us. It's been great. Thank you. And Jenny, Phil, thank you as always. Thank you to Dave Maguire, producer. We'll be back, of course, on Friday for our second election podcast of the week when we'll be reviewing the seven days. Do join us again then. Until then, goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.